brand. Everybody loves a good sob story, so long as it's not their story. I don't know why. I'm not sure if people honestly care about other people, or they just want a way to confirm that they've got it better than someone else. Someone they can point to and say, could be worse, I could be that guy. Don't get me wrong, I don't think people are really like that, not most people anyway, but I think they're, we're all guilty of it sometimes. Just like we're all guilty of doing the opposite, looking at everyone else around us and thinking that none of them understand, that they're living in a fantasy land full of birthday cake and sunshine and can't possibly get what we're going through. I think that all the time. I can't help it because, as it turns out, nobody knows what I'm going through. Then again, maybe that's because I haven't told them. Eduardo didn't sob when I told him my story, but he did get quiet. He knew Miss Bixby, he said. He remembered the pink hair, or was it orange? He couldn't quite recall, but she had definitely been in the shop before, and he was very sorry to hear about her diagnosis. He was even sorrier when I told him my side of the story, the truth, if not the whole truth, and why it was so important for me to see her today. Then he asked what all this had to do with cheesecake, and I explained that part too. He nodded to himself several times, flapping his fingers on the counter before telling me to just take it. The whole cake. Gratis. No charge. We argued about it for a few minutes more, and then I finally made a compromise, taking the cake and leaving 25 bucks on the counter. Nothing free is worth having. That's not one of Miss Bixby's sayings. My father actually taught me that one. My father, who keeps most of his money, most of our money, in the bread box by the refrigerator and tells me to take whatever I need. I slowly, I watch it slowly diminish, dwindle down to a few bills over a couple of weeks, and then I walk to the ATM by the village pantry and make a withdrawal, and the bread box is suddenly full again, like magic. I'm sure he keeps track, but he doesn't say anything. Most days, it's just lunch money, a couple of bucks to rent a movie, cash and tip for the pizza delivery guy. Fridays are different, though. Fridays are the best. Fridays, I take at least a hundred bucks. Today, I took 20. I guess I should have taken more. Of course, if my father knew that I spent 20 of his dollars on a cake for my teacher, he would flip. Of course, if he stopped and thought about it, he'd realize he probably owes her as much as I do. Nothing worth having is free. That's, there's a used bookstore just down the street, and Topher insists on going. He says there's something he wants to look at, something he should have thought of earlier. We still have some time before the right bus comes to pick us up. The bookstore is not part of the original plan written across my arm a few days ago, but I can tell Topher's a little peeved at me for leaving him out of the whole cheesecake getting, so I go along. First things first, though. We have to figure out some way to shove this cake in one of our backpacks. It weighs as much as a watermelon, and the box is the size of a microwave. Steve's pack is the biggest, so we empty it out, putting the speakers in Topher's and wrapping the backpack around the box as best as we can. It doesn't zip all the way, but the cake isn't going anywhere. We should have brought a cooler, Steve says. Che cheesecake should be kept refrigerated. I think it'll be fine for a couple of hours, Topher says, though I can tell by the look on his face that he doesn't know the first thing about cheesecake. If it doesn't come slathered in ketchup or have a picture of Captain Crunch on it, Topher's not interested. Steve carefully slides his arms through the straps, grunting at the weight. He looks like he's about to tip over backward, and I wonder if I shouldn't be the one carrying it. 
But I know if I say something to Steve, he'll think I'm hinting at something, that he's not strong enough, that he can't handle it. So I let it go and we walk over to Alexander's. That's the name of the bookstore and maybe the guy who owns it. Then again, maybe not. We push through the curtain of dust that greets us at the door, followed by the smell of pine wood and old spice cologne, the same kind my father used to wear back when he took showers every day before even going to the bathroom. I'm sorry, before even going to the bathroom counted as exercise. The place looks just like one look just look oh my goodness the place looks like one of those creaky old libraries you'd find in a goosebumps book jammed with books from floor to ceiling stacked sideways spineways slanted two and three deep on the shelves that lean in every possible direction like jenga blocks about to fall the floors creak when you step on them and even when you just stand there but that's not the spookiest part the spookiest part is the owl sitting in one of the high up shelves by the door Stuffed, obviously, except whoever stuffed it did it with its head twisted around looking backward. Owls can do that, I know, but it's still freaky. A sign on the wall below the twisted owl says, Caveat Emptor, in fancy gold letters, and then underneath, Buyer Beware. Beware of what, I wonder? The owl's clearly missing some feathers. I guess it's seen better days. The door swings shut behind us, no chimes or ringing bells to give us away. Topher calls out a, hello? There's no answer. Bizarre, he says. Yeah, I say. And creepy, Topher adds. That too. You ever been here before? I shake my head. Didn't even know the place existed. Topher inches a little closer to me. I can't imagine what he's thinking. His imagination must be an overdrive. Reminds me of the bookstore from The NeverEnding Story, he says. Never read it, I say. That's all right. It's practically impossible to finish anyway. Any other time, I'd laugh if I wasn't feeling so weirded out. We stand by the door, none of us wanting to take a further step inside. There aren't enough lights. At least a third of the bulbs are burned out, and that makes for a lot of shadows on the walls. I get a chill, and it seems to be contagious because Topher and Steve shiver too. Then, Just as I'm about to suggest turning around, heading back, and waiting at the bus stop, Steve sneezes and gets so hard he gets a blob of snot in the crook of his elbow, a huge yellow glob quivering there like jello. I think it's about time I picked his nose. That, oh, I think about the time I picked his nose. This is way grosser. We need a mishu, he calls out desperately, more more snot shaking down his lower lip. Topher says to just rub it in, but Steve looks horrified at the idea. I look around and find an an, oh, antique looking sign that says powder room, pointing down a dark hallway. Steve looks at the hallway, looks at the snot, trying to decide if it's worth, worst, worth the risk, and then finally stumbles off. Messy, Topher says. Yeah, I say. The upside is that Steve has broken the invisible force field that is holding us in place by the door, at least. We take a few timid steps, me leading the way, save for the three of us and the freaky backward-glancing owl. The place seems deserted. I stare at the mountains of books leaning against each other along the crooked wood shelves. Now that we're inside and surrounded by them, though, I feel a little better. It reminds me a little of Room 213 and how there are books everywhere you look. Miss Bixby would like it here, I think. This is the kind of place she would go, a place you could get lost in. A wooden placard dangling 
by twine from the ceiling said that we're in the literature section. I run a finger along one shelf, leaving my trail in the dust, then pull out a copy of a book by someone named Alfred Lord Tennyson. Never heard of the guy. Sounds, sounds like a blowhard. The gilded letters on the cover say, Idols of the King. I open it up to the middle, see that it's actually poetry, really long poetry, and quickly put it back. I don't mind reading literature when I have to, but it's almost summer and I have my limits. Suddenly, the books start to speak. There's not to make reply, there's not to reason, there's but to do and die. Topher and I instinctively step closer together. From the dark hallway with the powder room, I hear a sound, not quite a scream, more of a squeak, but definitely Steve's voice. Before I can even take a step toward it, though, a man, not much taller than me, peeks his head around the corner of the shelf, looking at us from behind thick, silver-framed glasses. I nearly trip over Topher as we both stagger backward. Aha! he says. The man who emerges from behind the bookcase looks like Yoda, if Yoda were a nearsighted, five-foot-tall white man in khaki pants and a frumpy gray sweater. Pointy ears just out of the melonish head, topped with little wisps of white hair tufting out like, like pulled cotton. And he's got Yoda wrinkles, too, the kind that come in waves crashing down to his eyebrows. His gray wool cardigan reaches nearly to his knees. He has a haunting expression on his eye, on his face, eyes wide, dangerous looking. Boldly they rode and well, he bellows, into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell. With the last word, he slaps his hand down on the bookshelf beside him. I jump. Then the man's expression suddenly softens. Tennyson, he says brightly. Topher mumbles something like, I don't say anything. I'm starting to think that there's a good chance we are about to be murdered. The charge of the light brigade, the man says. Surely you've heard it. Cannon to the right of them, cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered, stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well. His voice grows thunderous, then gravelly, then thunderous again, and he pounds one fist into the other hand and grins. I shake my head. The man frowns. What are they teaching kids in school these days? I maneuver a little, small steps, just so I have a clear path to the exit. I'm not sure he realizes it, but Topher is holding on to the sleeve of my shirt. Sorry, I didn't hear you boys come in. I was down in the basement eating a body, the old man adds, licking his lips. Uh, what? Topher asks. Biscotti, the old man repeats, holding up a half-eaten biscuit. They're quite good dunked in tea. Crazy five-foot-tall Yoda, who could still very well be an axe murderer, circles around us, blocking our path, heading toward the front of the store, probably to lock us in. I think we should get out of here, I whisper to Topher, and then I remember that Steve is still in the bathroom. The old man is standing at the entrance now, looking up at the stuffed owl above the shelf. He calls back over his shoulder. Normally, Scout warns me when we have guests. Don't you, Scout? The name strikes a chord, and I feel a little jolt of electricity shoot through me. The owl's name is Scout? I ask. I know a Scout. Miss Bixby introduced us not too long ago. The man nods. A good name for an owl, don't you think? He cocks his head, as if listening to the stuffed bird. Scout's wondering what brought you in here today. My eyes dance from the owl to the old man and back again. I elbow Topher. This was all his idea, after all. Topher clears his throat. We were... I step on his foot. I mean, I 
was um, looking for, you know, uh, for a book? Then you've come to the right place, hasn't he, Scout? The old man snorts and snaps his fingers. Maybe he's not a cannibal, but he's clearly nuts. No shortage of supply here, though I should warn you, I don't carry comic books. I don't have any diaries written for written by wimps. And the only novel I have about vampires was written over a hundred years ago. So if you're looking for anything like that, you might as well leave. Funny, that's what I said, I said to Topher through clenched teeth. I looked back toward the hallway to see if Steve has come out of the restroom yet. Actually, Topher says, ignoring me, I just need to know if you can point me to your fantasy section. The old man pulls a finger to, puts a finger to his nose and then points to Topher. Fantasy, of course. I could tell just by looking at you. And in a flurry of his flapping cardigan, he comes and takes Topher by the shoulders, leading him through the maze of shelves. Topher glances back at me, begging me with his eyes to come along. But I hear another door open and look to see Steve finally emerging from the hallway. Face ghostly. He approaches slowly, glancing back over his shoulder with every other step. When he gets to me, he takes a deep breath. There's a shark in the toilet, he says. If I were Topher, I'd laugh or give him a dirty look. But this is Steve. He doesn't make things up. He researches them carefully and then commits them to memory so he can bore you with them later. His eyes are as round as cheesecakes. Show me, I say, leaving Topher to fend for himself. We head down the dark hallway to the restroom. I flip on the light. Steve stands by the open toilet, pointing with both hands, just in case I don't know where to look. Huh? I say. Sure enough, someone has painstakingly painted the inside of the toilet bowl to look like a great white shark's gaping mouth. Pretty much just the mouth and the triangle snout, like the movie poster from Jaws. Rows of jagged teeth, red gullet, deep dark pit leading down to who knows where. Who paints a shark in their toilet? Steve wants to know. Of course he hasn't met the crazy wispy-haired man who talks to stuffed owls and shouts about the jaws of hell yet. I stare at the shark. I wonder how the paint even stayed on, I say. You'd think it would wear by now, you know, erosion or something. Probably because nobody ever uses it, Steve mutters. I guess it would be a little disconcerting, sitting there, picturing those teeth right below you, that long snout reaching up to take a bite out of your you-know-what. Didn't you? Are you kidding me? In that? Even if I had to, I wouldn't. I look down at the great white. It makes me think of Dad. I point to the door. If you'll excuse me, I say. Who paints a, tar a shark in their toilet? My father would, or at least it seems like something he would do or would have done before. Dad was a prankster, a gag master. We used to play practical jokes all the time on his buddies at work. Not on usual construction sites, of course, that would be stupid dangerous, but back at the office or right after work, whipped cream in the desk drawers, shaken cans of beer, switching the contents of sack lunches. It was the same at home for a while, except at home, I was the only target. And there were always sneak attacks. Except for one day out of the year. The one day I could see it coming, April 1st. Next to Christmas, April Fool's Day was the best holiday at our house. We even made up a mask, a mascot for it. A magical donkey who would sneak through your window on March 31st and dump a basket of goodies in your bed. Old school stuff. Joy buzzers and whoopee cushions and fake 
fake parking tickets, flies in your ice cubes and dollars on retractable string, and rubber dog poop. You always woke up with a big pile of dog dew right there on the pillow, right under your nose. Of course, he always played a prank on you as well, that clever little donkey. One time, he replaced my toothpaste with Elmer's glue. Not as bad as it sounds. I'd tasted it before, but hard to brush with. Another time, he pasted a fake mustache to my face in my sleep that I had to wear to school the next morning, earning me the temporary nickname Luigi, my fault for also wearing green. If you've ever taken a bite out of a caramel-coated onion that you expected to be an apple, you might have had a visit from the April Fool's donkey. It's all in good fun, Dad would say, and then he'd laugh while you picked the fake maggots out of your cereal bowl. You'd vow to get him back, of course, but he would suddenly look innocent and claim that it was just the donkey that did it. And you wouldn't eat, even though it was kind of funny, because maggots, fake or not, make you lose your appetite. But I did get him back. Sometimes. Not on April Fool's, of course. Not when his guard was up, but later. Put a rotten banana in the toe of his work boots. Stuck a fake roach in his grilled cheese. Sprinkled hot sauce on his french fries. He never got angry. Not once. Well played, son, he'd say, wrapping his arms around me, halfway between a hug and a wrestler's hold. Then he'd give me a grin full of wickedness and the promise of retaliation, and I'd spend the next three days opening every door slowly, inch by inch, and sniffing all my food before taking a bite. That was all before. Before the accident and the surgeries, the disability checks and the medications, the hours spent at home, in his chair or on the couch, cemented in place like a nickel superglued to the sidewalk. After a while, it wasn't just funny anymore. Any of it. There were no more pranks, no more gags. He would still make jokes sometimes, tell me something he heard on late night TV, and I would laugh, not wanting to disappoint him, but it wasn't the same. I said a prayer not long ago, on April Fool's Eve. If it's something I, it's not something I do often, praying, because I feel like if you do, it too much, it loses its effect, like building up a tolerance. God just starts to tune you out. But on March 31st, I prayed that the April Fool's donkey would appear and leave a big basket of gags on my bed and a pile of dog poop on my pillow. Not because I wanted to play a prank on anyone, though it would have been fun to see the look on Steve's face when he bit a piece of hot pepper gum, just because I didn't want to stop believing in him yet. The next morning, there was no basket, no poop, no joke, nothing to get him back for, nothing to look forward to. And we'll stop it right there. It's not the end of the chapter yet, but we'll stop it right there for today.